You're listening to the Think Christian Podcast, where we have another one of our book launch episodes. Though, don't worry, pop culture will come into play too, as well as our usual claim that there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and your host. Yes, TC contributors have been pumping the books out lately. I love to see it. On this show, I'm excited to talk to Claude Acho and dig into his recent release, Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. It's a smart and passionate work of literary criticism that considers landmarks like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Richard Wright's Native Son, Nella Larson's Passing, and Toni Morrison's Beloved. That last one is going to be the focus of this episode. Claude and I are going to discuss Morrison's novel, his book, and the 1998 movie adaptation of Beloved, produced by and starring Oprah Winfrey. I'll bring Claude on in just a bit, but before I do that, a request that if you've enjoyed the TC Podcast, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts? We're just a handful of reviews away from reaching 100, and hitting that milestone will encourage Apple to put us on the radar of new listeners. So if you'd like to help us get to 100, it's easy to leave a review right now while you are listening in the Apple Podcast app. Go ahead and scroll down to click on the show link. It will say Think Christian. Then scroll down again until you get to ratings and reviews. You can leave one right there. We appreciate it. All right, let's bring on someone I'm glad to not only call a friend and a TC contributor, but now an author, Claude Acho. Claude Acho is here with his new book, which is one that I think listeners of the TC podcast would greatly appreciate. Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. Congrats, Claude. How has reception to the book been? Has anything surprised you in terms of the response? Does it seem to be connecting in ways you had hoped? What's it like now that it's out there? Yeah, thank you, Josh. Yeah, it's it's been it's been encouraging. It's been positive, um, positive, you know, feedback, excitement, um, a couple of uh, neat reviews um, up from uh, Inglewood Review uh, Library Journal, and so that's been that's been really encouraging. And then what's been neat is to just hear from from different people, you know, obviously friends, but then you know other other folks saying, "Hey, I really like this chapter," and so it's just neat to see what resonates with people. Yeah, you know, what particular chapters folks connect with and why. And just sort of, you know, to create something, offer it, and then just see how others respond. Uh, I think the other thing that's been neat and surprising is how many people have commented on their desire to read the books that I talk about, which is ah. uh, really validating and I think wise for those people, but also a little bit surprising just because that, that's extra work. But I, I'm, I'm encouraged that, that I've heard from a number of folks that want to take up that work, which is a good labor to engage in. Yeah, that's very cool. That's great to hear. And I myself, you know, getting it in advance, used it as an excuse, even knowing well in advance some of those books yeah. you were you were going to write about. I took the occasion to check off my list a few of the ones that I had not yet had a chance to read. So I like to hear that people are using it in that direction as well. There's some really wonderful Christian literary criticism going on in the book, and it's applied to a number of the great books of American literature, including Beloved, Toni Morrison's 1987 Pulitzer Prize winner. So for those folks, Claude, those listeners who maybe haven't yet read Beloved, can you tell them what the novel is about and just a little bit about why that's one you chose to include in your book? 
Sure. So uh, Beloved uh, for Toni Morrison came out in uh, 1987, and she was inspired by uh, recovering um, kind of, I think, in some of her archival research, the story of uh, a black woman who had run away from uh, from plantation being enslaved. And in the process of running away, the slave masters had tracked her down and uh, were going to capture her and her children again. And uh, in this in this moment, the woman kills one of her own children to s- spare them from uh, essentially hell on earth returning back to the plantation. And so Toni Morrison ended up really fleshing out and crafting um, a whole novelistic world out of that particular experience as a way of um, exploring and kind of reckoning with the uh, the uh, obviously deep deep levels of trauma and suffering for um, for African Americans through chattel slavery in our country, uh, and so that's the that's the genesis of the novel. And the way that the story is told is sort of um, these twists and turns of the memory of that traumatic event for Setha, the, uh, the the main protagonist, and and her journey as she tries to sort of reclaim any sort of existence. And through the course of the novel, there's the return of, of different characters and, and friends that she knew from her life on the planta- plantation, as in the present of the novel, she settled uh, in, in Ohio. And so it's sort of this novel that that blends back and forth from, from the past and the present. And one of the reasons I wanted to, to cover it in the book is, you know, is one of the best novels that we have a 20th century. And it's a, it's a really important one. It's one that in some places has kind of been removed from curriculum and from reading lists because of the, um, the difficulty of, of the subject matter, but it's important history uh, for us because I think it's a novel that's exploring how, how is it possible to mend and to heal given this sort of experience for our people, but also uh, in our in our nation. Uh, what does that sort of look like? And and that just felt like a really critical book to to engage with. Yeah, as you said, if it is being pulled in some places, maybe even more critical now today than it mm-hmm. might have been a couple of years ago when it was already this foundational piece of literature. One of the voices that returns, Claude, that you you were talking about these characters and, re- and voices that return is actually that baby in this mm-hmm. novel. So Morrison also constructs this as a ghost story, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point earlier on, we see that um, Setha and her other daughter are haunted in this house that they live in by um, the ghost of this baby. But then a little further along in the novel, we actually see in the form, if I'm right in understanding this, she arrives in the form at the age she would have been if she had lived. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, so, I believe so. Sort of yes. a late teens, um, yes. younger woman, yeah. And that's beloved. That's what the title of the uh, novel comes from. And so it's very interesting that uh, Morrison has taken this historical story and given it the lens of um, the supernatural yes. in a way and brings those two things together. It's, it's one of the uh, really distinctive things about the book. I think I read... Beloved, if not high school, probably was college. And for me, it was one of the first times that I recognized the generational reverberations Mm. of slavery. And so appropriately, it's been a novel that has haunted me still. Mm. Um, It just comes back to me really whenever the national conversation turns to race in some way. Mm. Beloved kind of rises back in the back of my mind and, and just reminds me how we got to this point and why that history still matters practically for folks of 
Color Today. So it's just an absolute landmark, a very difficult read, um, mm-hmm. as you've, you've yeah. already said, and um, I would absolutely agree with, but an essential one in a lot of ways. Now, in your book, uh, Writing About Beloved, one of the things that stood out to me, Claude, in your chapter on that novel is that you put it in the context of secularism, which I found interesting. No surprise. We say there's no such thing as secular yeah. here. And so I, I, I liked thinking about it that way. I don't think that Beloved is necessarily considered a particularly religious book. There are religious elements in it, absolutely. Um, but in terms of being written from a specifically religious perspective or something like that. But you do draw out the theological implications within it. And I wanted to read a little bit from your book, Claude, uh, where you touch on this. In reading Beloved, it is difficult not to consider the shortcomings of secularism. It fails to adequately express and account for the depths of suffering and found evil in this life. Our healing cannot be found in secularism since it cannot fully account for the world in which we live, love, and suffer. And then later you say, our suffering may take place in the shadows, but as Beloved demonstrates, our healing happens in the light of community. Can you talk just a little bit more about that and maybe how you see Christianity as as meeting both the suffering and the healing in ways that maybe secularism cannot? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Beloved is none of the—and I mentioned this in the chapters—none of the characters are surprised that the house that Setha lives in is haunted by uh, the traumas of enslavement in the past. There's sort of this presumption that the world is an enchanted place and that uh, evil, when it happens, it has effects that that last longer than what we know and what we see. And I think part of that comes from, I, I would imagine, Toni Morrison's sort of Catholic faith and upbringing. But but I think that's really in, instructive uh, for us to, to think about these major evils and social ills that we deal with, that, that we're not simply engaging. The process of healing and remedying these things are not simply matters of information. Um, they're not simply matters of sort of, can we muster human will and, and human strength to begin to like tackle these challenges. As important as those sort of things are, we, we actually have to realize that we're dealing with forces uh, of evil that mm-hmm. are that are hostile and against God's creation and against the flourishing of people. And I think any um, any real accounting of healing at a personal level, societal level, a communal level that that won't take that into account can't really reckon with the full scale of the problems that we're dealing with. I mean, we're we're recording this, you know, a few weeks after we've suffered gun violence again and again in in our country. And and for for us for for Christians to think that we're dealing with something that's just a matter of needing to convince people but not also recognizing there's a deep there's deep evil that is at work in these sort of things. We we have to recognize both of those and we we have to give our full engagement in both areas. And I think beloved to me is something that it does justice to the people that have suffered in these ways because they believed that the world was enchanted and they believed that they weren't just dealing with bad attitudes of people, but that actual evil was happening and is at work and it needs to be pressed against so that so that we can heal into what God intends us to be. As you're using that phrase, deep evil, in my mind comes one of the effects used in the movie adaptation of Beloved, and it's when that throbbing red light appears in the home. And that's complicated because it's attached to Beloved the ghost, which is completely separate from the trauma 
that resulted in her death. So I don't mean to equate those two things, but it does. It's one of those instances where the veil is pierced and you are shown cinematically that there is, you know, this other spiritual reality at play connected to what these characters have experienced. So I'm wondering maybe if we can switch to talking about the movie, which we wanted to bring in here. We are more of a pop culture podcast than a literature one. So wanted to find a way in to, to think about it in those terms as well. The movie Beloved came out in 1998, produced by Oprah Winfrey, who also stars as Setha, the mother, the main character, as you said. The director here is Jonathan Demme, who also made The Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia and the great Talking Heads documentary, Stop Making Sense. In addition to Oprah Winfrey, the movie stars Danny Glover as Paul D. and Tandyway Newton as Beloved when she does arrive as, again, the younger woman. So, Claude, this is a dreaded question I'm going to throw at you in a lot of ways, but it's the one that you are particularly equipped to consider, I think. You watched this, I believe, for the first time for our conversation. Did the film do justice to the book to you? It's not going to be its equal, but do you think it did justice or did you have some significant qualms about the adaptation? I thought the movie did justice to the book. I was surprised at how dedicated the movie was to the novel. Like it, it really follows uh, the story closely. It tries to convey. You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Josh, was that the the novel is is hard to read, and and it is. It's hard to read in in the subject matter, but also in the form. Uh, the chapters are not numbered. In fact, I was trying to look at something earlier for this conversation, and so I had to like count all the chapters to try to find it uh, <laughs> or look through my you know my my scribblings. So the novel is hard to read in in terms of the the content, but also in the form. And there's these flashbacks and and sort of the grammar changes and all these different sort of things to help you experience sort of the 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 tidal waves of of, of memory and trauma and pain. And the movie. Does tries to do the same thing, uh, and so through as you mentioned the lighting, the, the some of the flashbacks, some of the kind of like uh, splicing intercuts and all that sort of stuff. So I, I was I was actually really surprised at how intentional Oprah, the producers, uh, I mean the director, all the, that whole team, how intentional they were to to be faithful to the novel. And I just have a lot of respect for that because um, you know as I was reading about the movie, you know it didn't do well. It didn't do well. Uh, Oprah has spoken in, in different interviews at, at length about um, how depressed she was that the film did not do well. And in retrospect, I, I read an interview um, that that she participated in a, a few years back, uh, maybe five or six years back. And looking back on on Beloved, she 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 commented that she was thankful that they didn't dumb it down for general audiences, but they tried to be as faithful as possible to to the heart and um, kind of essence of the novel. So I think in, in those terms, I think the movie is is faithful. I think the movie is successful. Obviously, very difficult to watch, but I think as, a, as an adaptation, it, it's faithful and successful on those terms. Yeah, and in terms of it not doing well, you would think something like this would get attention from the Oscars, right? Historical, serious material. Yeah. Um, we've seen more honest looks at American history be recognized in recent years. And in some ways, maybe Beloved was ahead of its time or the Academy or the film culture was not ready for it yet because I'm looking now as you're talking and it was only nominated for one Academy yeah. Award and that was costume. Best Costume Design. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, by Colleen Atwood, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, Again, it if, it, if it had come out today, um, you like to think that people would be more open to this, a movie like this, despite that difficulty that you're you're talking about. And 
I would say, Claude, I haven't watched it since it came out. Uh, so this was a revisit for me. And you're right in its faithfulness. It does make for a more challenging viewing experience. And because of that, it struck me as a little bit clunkier on this rewatch. But I also think that's partly because when it came out, I had read the book within a few years earlier, you know, so that experience was fresh to me. I could bring it as well. So here being more removed from the book, I could see some of the clunkiness that I know uh, some people did hold against it when it came out. Uh, but overall, I still think it's an incredible film and very uh, unique in terms of its approach to this sort of mm -hmm. material and its literary source. There is, though, a lot of suffering. And there is that mm -hmm. question now of does it at any point exploit some of the suffering that we see? I know that's a completely different conversation we are having these days when it comes to films that look at American history and black suffering and when are they possibly exploiting that. So I think that's a fair question to ask of mm -hmm. this movie as well. Yeah. But I also think it's balanced in Beloved, as it is in the book. I think the suffering in the book is balanced by this as well. These scenes in a place called The Clearing. So this is in the woods, and this is where Setha's mother-in-law, Baby Suggs, played by Bea Richards in the movie, gathers her neighbors to deliver spoken word performances of encouragement and self-love. We visit this place three times in the film, Claude. And again, though it's not an explicitly Christian ceremony— in your book, you draw out a parallel to the creational pattern in Genesis. I just love that. Had not occurred to me before, but one of those things when someone points it out, it just clicks. Like, that mm. makes total sense. So I'm wondering if you might be able to describe that a little bit, too. Sure, yeah. So the baby Suggs, as you mentioned, uh, Sutha's mother-in-law, she, and, and again, in the novel, these are flashbacks similar in the movie. And in this space, the clearing baby Suggs, who in the novel were told, you know, she preaches, um, she goes to some of the different churches and, and preaches and, and is sort of this, uh, uh, you know, a Moses, Harriet Tubman sort of figure. And it's uh, through the strength of her, her heart, uh, the text says continually that she's able to sort of give refreshment and, and dignity to her community, to her people. So in the clearing, she uh, she gathers all the people and she gives these um clear sort of really liturgical orders to to the people you know um young children like smile uh men come and let your children see you dance mm -hmm. uh women weep for the living and the dead and shout and pray, like all these sort of things so she gives these liturgical guidances that are healing that are restorative to the people these these are things that they're not able to do in the confines of 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 their their daily existence it's only in this separate community in this kind of holy set apart space that they can do these things, which are things that that human beings are made to do as, as those made in the image of God, to have the full range of, of, of human experience under God. And so she permits them, instructs them, commands them to do this. And as she does that, she gives the liturgical movements, but then she'll also exhort and she'll say, yonder, they don't love your fl flesh, but you love your flesh, you love your heart. And so she's, she's I, I read that as encouraging uh, the people to embrace their God-givenness and to love their God-given dignity, even if nobody else will. Uh, they must do that. Here in this place, we are flesh. Flesh that weeps, laughs, dances barefoot in the grass. Love your flesh. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love our flesh. Oh, 
only lose time by chop off and leave empty. And, and so um, in the chapter, I, I try to build on uh, uh, a writer named Sean Copeland. She she talks about there's sort of a new knowledge that that's given through Baby Suggs' exhortation that really creates a new people. And what's really beautiful about the way the text describes it in in, in Beloved is that creation responds, right? The, the, the trees move, um, the woods shake, uh, and it sort of has this pattern of let there be, uh, and it was good that we see in Genesis. You see the sort of the same sort of textures there. And so to me, all of that kind of comes together as an attempt um, that Baby Suggs makes to return her people to creational goodness, where slavery is anti-creational, right? Stealing the dignity and life from people. Baby Suggs is trying to restore that and, and trying to lead people into new creation. And I think it's a really important encouragement when you think about what it means to for people to heal from from the things that that we suffer and go through and in whatever ways that looks like. It's to to recognize our God-givenness, to to recognize the the dignity and the value that we have despite whatever anti-creational forces of suffering or sin or trauma or wounds would impose upon us that that we're, we're more than our suffering. Uh, we're we're made and loved by God and and we have to return to these truths. Uh, and and not just on our own but but together uh, the way that it's done in, in in the clearing so that we can we can heal and grow uh, together. So I think those scenes are, are really important in the novel. I, I did appreciate the way the film comes back to them at important points. I think actually the movie sort of ends with another return to the clearing, which is different than the novel. It, it may not be the exact last scene, but it's in that sort of final final stretch run of the film, which is which is different than than the way the novel ends. So so I, I can see them wanting to make that central. Uh, in a way that it is central in the novel and, and trying to heighten that for the film. The filmmaking itself, too, in these scenes in the clearing is pretty incredible with the camera work, especially the dancing ones yeah. where the people have gathered and are yes. moving in a circle around Baby Suggs. And then the camera takes a circular movement the opposite direction. And it's capturing what you were just describing in the novel, how nature is responding. We feel, you know, if you equate the camera with nature, with the wind, something like that at that moment. Everything is in concert together. So they are very lovely scenes in the movie. So I have a last question for you, Claude, and then we can touch on any other lingering things that might be on your mind. But this is one that I was curious about. It's one that we can apply now to the movie, Beloved, that, again, not too many people were thinking of at the time, though there have long been claims about what directors should be telling what stories. I think that's more prominent in the culture now than it was when Beloved was made. Jonathan Demme, a white director, and absolutely an empathetic director. I think if you were going to point to someone at that time who you might trust with such material, you would trust him based on some of his other work. But his experience and understanding of Beloved, the novel, is absolutely different than that of an African-American filmmaker. My experience of reading Beloved, and watching the movie is different than yours, Claude. So just curious, thinking about that, where we are now, what your feelings are on having someone like Demi B at the head of this particular movie. Yeah, that, I, I've been thinking about that. that. That's a that's a hard one. That's complicated. I mean, I'm glad that this movie exists and was made, and I'm glad that Oprah was a part of the producers to bring this to life. So I know it wasn't. There was a, a diverse team that was bringing this to to life, and and I, and I think. In this situation, the fact that they chose to be so true to the novel, to me, says a lot about 
at least from the outside, the, the sort of posture that was taken from the director, you know, a, a, across the board, that that there was a desire to um, to really venerate and respect what Morrison had crafted and to put that forward without any shortcuts. And so I, I really just commend that. Uh, so so I think in this situation, I feel like it works. Uh, I I do. Yeah, I, I do wonder about that. You know, I was even thinking about, you know, the, a movie that came out around this time that I did see in the theaters at the time. Uh, my uncle made me see it. I didn't want to. was the year before Amistad mm. um, by Steven Spielberg. So it came out in, ni- in 97, uh, the story of, of black slaves coming over in their sort of revolt, if I remember the plotline correctly. Yeah, the middle passage. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, yeah, and I wonder, I mean, I haven't seen that recently. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think the two feels of those films are really different, you know? Um, and so I think in this case, because there was such a clear decision to to really hold true to what to Morrison's vision, I think it works. But it's such a complicated and difficult question. It, to me, it's sort of something that has to kind of be worked through case by case. Yeah. You know, I was even thinking about, I mean, sometimes the situation is sometimes these movies won't get made unless there's certain directors attached that have the money behind this. So then you get into the spot, well, do you want the story to be told or do you not want it mm-hmm. to be told? And uh, so so I don't know. I, I feel like that's something I just, I don't, I don't think I have a good answer to. No, that's helpful. It gives me some good context for thinking about it. I think that power question is hopefully shifting a little bit now where you wouldn't necessarily, I think of someone like Barry Jenkins making the Underground Railroad series and how instrumental he was And that I think his involvement was seen as it should have been as an absolute plus, not just something that, you know, needed to be added on, that it was crucial to have him not only for who he is as a black filmmaker, but for what he brings in terms of his talent to a story like that. And your context of Amistad, I had not thought of that, is really intriguing. I have not seen Amistad probably in as long as I've seen Beloved. And so I may have this wrong, but my memory is that that story does turn towards almost legislation and becomes it does. Yeah. Right. A story of sort of the white response. And as much as we might want to be on the side of the those responses, it is leaving the black space for a white space in what is absolutely, you know, a story of those people who are being brought over and what they have suffered. That's kind of like a launching pad, which maybe does seem a little wrong. And yeah, in comparison to that, absolutely beloved, the attention is where it should be. And it's still difficult, as you're saying, like if a a, a talented Black filmmaker had been given this material, obviously it would have been looked very different from what we get from Demi. But I, I do think there was care to, to place the attention where it should be. And probably Winfrey's involvement uh, mm-hmm. is crucial to totally. that, you know? You should probably just end on the fact that she's incredible in this movie. I mean, yep. it's just, I know she has acted since, but I don't, and maybe it was a response to, you know, how this movie was responded to, that it didn't really make as much of an impact as she had hoped. I don't think she's taken on anything um, quite as monumental, and it's a little bit of a loss, I would say, for us, because the the layers she brings to this performance in, in an incredibly difficult character. Do we want to really root for Setha? Do we, mm-hmm. you know, at sometimes the movie seems we should root more for Beloved. Mm-hmm. And that's the trick that the book itself is playing yeah. with a little bit. And so for Winfrey to be able to bring us along through all those difficulties is quite incredible. Was there a, maybe that's a, a good question to throw at you as we wrap up here. Was there a performance or a character where you're like, yeah, that's it more than any of the others? 
I think Oprah was amazing. There's a couple, you mentioned the clearing scene. The other standout scenes are um, the moment where Setha, uh, obviously played by Oprah, she realizes who Beloved is and you kind of get this turn. You see her whole face. She's uh, incredible in, in the film. And also um, the actress that that plays Denver, I yes. believe it's uh, Kimberly. Kimberly uh, Elise. Mm-hmm. I mean, also uh, uh, just remarkable performance as well. Uh, so so those would be the two, I think, that just really stand out in, in terms of bringing so much to uh, really, obviously, di- difficult uh, story and difficult characters. And, and and I love the way, I mean, this uh, the Denver character, her arc, her journey through the story is, I think, in the midst of a story that's deeply painful, has a, a true hope to it. Um, and, and so I, I just thought she, um, that was captured perfectly. Yeah. And the story sort of shifts a little bit to her, you know, and her experience of all this and how she is going to move on from how she experienced the trauma, you know, what her next life is going to look like or her life beyond her experience with her mother. And yeah, Kimberly's, Kimberly Elise is great too. And Danny Glover can do no wrong. Yeah. So from the casting, they, they, they got well. that yes. right. Absolutely. Anything else you wanted to touch on or stray thoughts you had about the movie or you wanted to to bring up about the novel itself that you think is uh, good to know? You know, not really. I mean, I think I would encourage people, you know, um, the, the movie, as you said, is, 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 is well done, well made. And I would encourage people to, to read the novel and I would encourage people to, to read the novel, read it with others. Um, I, I think it's an, it's an important work to, um, to process, hold space for, and to uh, to engage with it. This is uh, the the epigraph is that for sixty million and more. So it, it's an important part of our of our story as a as a collective people as a nation. And so I just would encourage people to uh, to give the space and make the space to to engage in that if they if they haven't read this read this uh, uh, previous. Yeah, I like the idea of reading with others because then you can you'll have someone else to get your bearings yeah. with. Just emotionally, but also in terms of format mm-hmm. too, because I had forgotten that, but you're right. It is hard to get your bearings a little bit. What part of the story are we at? Who's, you know, whose eyes are we seeing this through a little bit? I think that's ultimately part of the mastery of the book when you step back and you're done and you see how this tapestry has been woven. But in the midst of it, it can be a little disorienting. So that's one good thing. One helpful thing would be to read it yeah. alongside others. And then use your book as sort of a guide, a discussion point. Yeah. You know, there are great things in there where people can say, all right, let's let's read this chapter and and uh, have a gathering and talk about what this uh, book meant to us. Any book-related events along those lines um, that listeners should maybe know about or other places you're going to be talking about it if they want to hear more that that you want to mention, Claude? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'll, so I'll be at the, the Glenn Workshop in Asheville, um, North Carolina in July, um, the week of the 24th. I mean, I believe people can still sign up for that if you're able to, to make your, your way over. It would be obviously wonderful to, to, to meet you and to, uh, to be a part of that. I'm teaching a seminar on some of these books that, that, I, that I cover in, in, in my book, Baldwin, Ellison, some of the classics of 20th century African-American literature. So that'd be a great thing. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll be... Um, popping around on some different podcasts in the next couple months. And so keep, keep an eye out for that. And you can see what I'm up to on Twitter. Usually, usually loosely active there. So <laughs> <laughs> loosely active. I like loosely. that. Sounds like a healthy approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's probably, yeah, it's, it's good for everyone. Just minimally active. <laughs> <laughs> the Glenn workshop, they, 
put out amazing stuff. So I was really excited to see that you're going to be a part of that. And another thing you've done, I don't know how we got you to do this in the midst of all this book craziness, but at the Think Christian website, you did write about the new Kendrick Lamar yes. album for us. Yeah. So Mr. Morrell and the Big Steppers. Kendrick stuff, always a lot to wrap yeah. your head around, and you have given us a really good way, an entry point in for doing that. So we'll link to that in the show notes at Think, so people can find it at thinkchristian.net and the Glenn Workshop stuff as well. Congrats again on the book. Thank you for your time, and uh, we'll catch up with you again down the road. All right, Claude? Thank you. Appreciate it. We're going to wrap things up there for this episode. Hopefully, you've been intrigued to check out Claude's book, Reading Black Books. If you read our articles over at thinkchristian.net, you'll find it's doing similar work in terms of applying a theological lens to art. So it's very much of a piece with TC. Now, if for some reason you don't read the work of Claude and others over at the website, the easiest way to keep up with our articles is to sign up to subscribe to receive our emails. You can do that at thinkchristian.net slash subscribe. If you want to keep up with us on Twitter or Facebook, just follow us at Think Christian. Over on YouTube, we do have video versions of this show as well as some other video content. So look for the Think Christian YouTube channel. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported program of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director, overseeing content strategy, is Robin Baslin. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. 